Hello and welcome to How I Got Here. For this episode, I'll be speaking to Troy Blacklaws, a South African writer who has written four books now. His novels about boyhood during the apartheid have gained him quite the following, and he's been generous enough to come into the studio today to share with us how he became an accomplished author. Welcome to the show, Troy. Hi. Um, we're really excited to hear about your book, Karoo Boy. But before that, um, we'd like to hear about you personally and how you came to be a writer um, and how that journey was for you? Well, I, I always dreamed of writing, and as a schoolboy, I would write uh, fumbling poems, which I hope are lost to the world. And uh, I had a teacher, an English teacher in high school, a man called Slater, who's dead now, though I had no hand in that, um, who <laughs> used, to, used to read uh, from Cry of the Beloved Country. And there was something in the way that he read that uh, awakened my mind to the, the magic in the music of words and I thought that I too wanted to put a book like Cry the Beloved Country out into the world mm -hmm. to tell a South African story that the world would read and uh, and at university I went on to study English which uh, made it uh, trickier in some ways uh, to, to um, follow this path towards my dream in that I was so daunted by the writers I read by uh, Conrad and Garcia Marquez who seemed uh, guards to me and whose words seemed so inevitable and so measured against theirs my, my writing felt feeble and uh, fetal and so I wasn't uh, I found for a long time that I, I, I read writers and uh, it took a long time to find the guts to put words to paper but I did in the end um, and uh, before uh, heading out into the world I jotted down some of my boyhood memories uh, in the hope that uh, they would, wherever I ended up and however far I travelled, that I would uh, not, not uh, lose track of those memories. And all my writing so far is drawn on memories of my boyhood in South Africa. And how true um, to your own experiences as Karoo Boy would you say that most of it's fabricated um, based on some facts or would you say it's the other way around? Well, Karoo Boy begins with uh, the macabre fluke death of a boy on a beach in South Africa in 1976. Um, and this is something that uh, happened in my distant family before mm -hmm. I was born. Um, on Christmas Day, playing a game of cricket, a father bowled a ball um, that hit his uh, son uh, on the head. Mm. Um, the son happened to be one of uh, twin brothers. And so the father forever saw in the image of the... the um, you know, surviving son, the, mm. the, the, the boy he killed. He could never, you know, he could never in any way forget uh, what he'd done, however unwittingly. Mm. So that was something that happened historically and it haunted me. But uh, the story of uh, uh, Douglas, the surviving twin brother, is uh, uh, from then onwards uh, just an invention. Um, but I wanted to play with the idea of the, the hero and his shadow and mm -hmm. um, with the idea of the lost twin um, it seemed to me that as a boy in South Africa, that uh, being schooled in a white uh, context under apartheid, that there was always this this other self who uh, remained fetal and who never learnt about African culture and uh, uh, never learnt um, uh, African languages, um, who was somehow forever a shadow figure. Yeah. And are these struggles that you experienced growing up in South Africa too, or just ones that you imagine that other, other people your age would have? Well, um, 
Douglas has a hard time when he arrives in this uh, desert town um, in in the Karoo uh, as a as a sea boy, a boy who was a surfer with his long flyaway blonde hair, and the desert boys uh, bait him and uh, mock him and uh, hunt him down. Mm. And there, I'm drawing on my memories of a boyhood at Parboys High, where I was. Uh, a lone English boy um, in, in a school of hardcore Boer boys who um, thought of me as a, as a, a nigger lover, a kafabuti was their word for having black friends on the farm. Mm. And uh, so that's, uh, I, I'm drawing on my experience of, of ha- uh, you know, having been a victim of hazing and of having spent mm-hmm. a lot of my uh, free time in school uh, dodging and diving to escape the, some of the hardcore rugby boys. Um, some people say that writing is very therapeutic. Would you say that it was a cathartic experience to be able to write those moments down? Well, I, I think that uh, however hard my school days were, that um, I was handed stories that uh, have surfaced in Blood Orange, which is the the story of my boyhood under apartheid, and the character there, Gecko, is, is me, rather poorly disguised. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, in in a sense, uh, you know, Douglas is a, a version of me too, and um, I'm drawing on the canvas, the, the the fabric, and the the textures of 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 my boyhood in in Africa. I think I've lost track of your question, though. So, was it a cathartic experience? Um, I, I, my my school uh, uh, days under apartheid were were harrowing. They were hard. I was it was a lonely and bitter time for me. Um, there were few boys who would. Uh, hang out with me given the the way that I was um, you know the way that I was abated uh, um, not a, my, my sin was not only that I uh, had black uh, friends or that I wanted Mandela freed from jail but also that I played hockey instead of rugby in a myriad <laughs> ways I, w- I was just out of sync somehow mm-hmm. with the others so it was a very hard and lonely time and I, I think I, I found that I've written three books now, and all of them are, are novels of youth, and uh, all the characters are, are um, in one way or another, versions of me. I, I don't seem to be to have so far transcended that time or fully escaped it. So I think, in, in a sense, I'm still writing myself out of that um, boyhood. But um, there, there's another sense in which it was Karubo is cathartic in that um, I lost a sister who died uh, violently uh, when she was young, and I always felt... Uh, kind of a twin ship with her. Uh, mm-hmm. We had an uncanny way of um, communicating uh, without words. And so, in a sense, uh, Karoo Boy 2 is uh, you know, a, a book about dealing with loss, my long poem of uh, love and loss. Some people have said that it's these hardships that people go through that make them the artists that they are, and, you know, it's like that tormented artistic side that comes out. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you think that you have to have been through certain obstacles to be able to write with such depth, or do you think it's innate anyway? I, I think uh, some of the the awe and, and wonder um, at the way you can juggle a few words and then some sort of magic happens is uh, innate. But mm-hmm. then, on the other hand, uh, you know, the, I, I think that uh, there, there is a macabre fascination with South Africa and apartheid in the world. And I, and I think that, that my telling South African stories um, plays into my hands in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's got to do with uh, the injustice of apartheid having captured the imagination of the world. Um, you know, Viet- Vietnam, you know, uh, 
um, other contexts, I think. I mean, if, if you think of the Balkans, and uh, are sometimes trickier to fathom to figure out, you know, mm. good and evil. But in South Africa, it was always a matter of black and white, mm. and it was, uh, I think, that you know, the world at a glance figured out who who the victims were and who the, um, you know, who the assholes were, to use a crude word in that context. So I think it's one of those scenarios that uh, really. Um, slides well into into fiction and into film and there've been a, a myriad um you know, films uh, about South Africa and about apartheid and cry freedom and the power of one um you know red dust come to mind mm. cry the beloved country too um how has fatherhood changed you and also changed your writing i think it's uh, um lent a measure of humility and maybe um, humanity to my writing, which is not to say that you have to be a father to have empathy or to imagine yourself as a father or um, I'm not, uh, you know, it's not so much that it's rendered me a finer human being uh, in any way, but it's just, um, I I think it's, um, being being a father has has made me realize how vulnerable you are. um, how you know, you know if something happens to a child, how you know, lost you'd be. Um, you know, uh, I, I think all that's just seeing the wonder too in in the way that um, my son and daughters uh, tune into stories when I read to them is uh, it keeps reminding me of of you know the magic of that the magic uh, of, of, of words, um, and so it's something that I don't lose sight of, and it keeps me from sort of backpedaling into some cozy place where I put my feet up and read the paper, I think. It keeps me on my toes. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that it keeps me young. Um, and you know, it, you know, Gecko, who, uh, the, the boy in Blood Orange, is, you know, he, is, he isn't gone. I mean, he, there's still a boy in me who's um, very uh, mischievous and playful and uh, you know, still dreaming of all kinds of crazy things. So... I think being a father uh, means that boyhood and childhood never really falls out of focus. Then you, you, you're reminded of it all the time. Um, yeah, and so then, that will definitely you know, keep you young then. Yeah. Um, so now sitting before me, you are you embody every bit the writer that I imagined you to be. But what were you like as a child? Were you already very fond of writing? You mentioned briefly that you were in- intimidated at university by the kind of works that you studied but before that do you think you were always close to words and you know in tune with that um i spent uh, much of my uh, boyhood um my my school days at Paul boys high as i said uh, attempting to sidestep and elude some of the the boys who hunted me down and so i would often uh, be alone during those during canteen time and i would hide behind the um, school um pool pump house or some other corner I found and I would be forever reading mm-hmm. um, and uh, so you know just uh, you know, reading reading Camus reading Garcia Marquez reading whatever books I could find that uh, took me on journeys beyond the the you know uh, context I felt rather trapped in so I was always something of a dreamer and I, I was always that uh, maybe a shy, sidestepping boy who had this hope that one day somehow I would uh, find a way to to, uh, to to 
conjure stories in the way that uh, you know, that the writers uh, was so in awe of did. Mm-hmm. And when was that moment when you realised that you could really get your work published, when you thought, wow, you know, I think I might be good enough? Well, I, I told you that I wrote down memories of South Africa before mm. heading out into the world, and I ended up uh, reeling in a teaching post I- in England. And there, um, sometimes in that dead time at the end of a lesson, I would read uh, to my students these uh, memory snapshots. And it was in reply to their questions that I ended up further um, writing out some of these memories and that it, it ended up becoming uh, a narrative in time, mm-hmm. um, something that I called at that time Out of Our Blues, and I sent it out to, to publishers um, uh, in uh, in the UK. All of them turned it down out of hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, over years and years and years, I, I, I sent out my writing, um, my crew boy um, uh, was uh, shot down a myriad times. In fact, it was not the first novel I penned. Artvark Blues became Blood Orange, and that was shot down, I think, 27 times by publishers in, in London and New York. So it, it took me 14 years to find a publisher, and uh, I would put it down to a kind of doggedness uh, r- rather than you know, raw talent on my part. But this uh, sense that somehow somewhere if I uh, you know if I if I uh, followed every whisper of chance that uh, you know a, a kind eye would be cast over my words mm. and for people who are writing now what's an indication that their work is worth more than just you know sharing it between friends that it's it's worth going to see a publisher about well I don't know if I would ask uh, a writer that who's book was shot down you know 27 times because uh, <laughs> evidently I hadn't uh, you know I hadn't found the formula and um, I, I, I think I, I've never read a, a book on how to write books um, mm-hmm. I've always felt that I want to follow my instincts on this uh, score so um, I, you know, I I wouldn't really um, know how you you judge other than going by your own innate um deep sense that you have a story to tell mm-hmm. and um, you know, no matter how many uh, times you are snubbed and scorned and how often your manuscript comes back to you, you know, uh, dog-eared and spat on um, that you you just uh, you know, the story won't let you go in a sense mm-hmm. I, I think at the end of the day if there's a story that um, you feel in your bones has to be told then it'll find its way out is it that desire to tell your story that kept you going for 14 years and persevering with this same manuscript? Um, I, I, I sometimes wonder in retrospect what it was. Um, I, you know, I think most folk with good sense would have uh, abandoned mm. you know, the dream somewhere along the line. I mean, there were years and years and years of, of keying open my post box to discover another, you know, uh, another paper from a publisher and inevitably... It was it was a, a, you know, another um, spurning of my writing. Mm. Um, what what uh, ultimately uh, made me um, endure and and hold on to the the dream is um, kind of mystifying to me. I, I don't know where that came from, but um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it was uh, just something to do with the you know, the, the way that. Uh, uh, I, I wanted uh, to record and to attempt to conjure for my 
son and for my daughters, something of my boyhood in Africa. They're half South African, mm-hmm. and I thought that um, they might never live there and it might always be foreign to them. And uh, so it was yeah, for, for, for them in that sense that I wrote uh, uh, as I did. And had the books not published, I still would have felt that they were stories that uh, I wanted to tell and mm-hmm. put down on paper. How old are they now, your kids? Well, my, my son, Finn, is uh, 18. He's uh, studying film in Bournemouth. So uh, he's read the book. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's read Crew Boy. And in fact, by some uh, surreal quirk of fate, I ended up teaching the book to him. He was in my English class wow. last year. So that, that, was, uh, that felt uh, weird, teaching my novel to my son. Um, but the book is, is read um, in, in a few schools around the world. And... Uh, was something of a, you know, a, a, um, a, a, a kind of fairy tale. The way that uh, it caught the eye once it mm-hmm. was, uh, um, the way it was originally published in Cape Town and then surfaced in New York and then in Paris and Amsterdam and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in, in fact, uh, it's it's uh, in in Paris really that uh, um, you know that that all all three of my novels have surfaced in um, have been beautifully translated by Flammarion. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I have a low key cult following anywhere, it's it's uh, in Paris. Curiously, I don't, I don't quite know what it is that, uh, but the, the, my writing seems to find a resonance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after all that, Troy, how did you end up getting published? Well, well, what happened is that I ended up uh, by by chance uh, teaching in Frankfurt, and as it happens, uh, there's a book fair there every year that you will have heard of, mm-hmm. and all the you know, publishers of the world gather, and so I, I naively went along with the, the manuscript to Blood Orange that I'd uh, printed out, and uh, went up to the book fair and said that I was keen to, you know, um, you know, go in and. Um, and draw the eye to my manuscript. And no doubt with uh, all the publishers of the world there, there'd be one who might be curious about my story. Mm. And these uh, men at the gate in uniform um, told me to go away, that this is uh, you know, a fair for folk in the industry and that uh, some you know, obscure would-be writer you know, had no place there. And I said that I, I, th- I thought that was crazy. I mean, I would, you know, publishers must be looking for stories and this is a good story. Um, and I kind of begged and hassled them until, in the end, they, um, you know, they, they they physically took me and kind of frog marched me away from <laughs> away from the book fair, and they um, cast me down on the on the flagstones, and I let go of my manuscript so that my papers were scattered. And there's a vast uh, sculpture there outside the Frankfurt Book Fair of a giant, and his his hand comes down on a kind of a lever slowly. So as I gazed up at the sky, I saw this hand coming down towards me. And I, part of me felt that this was God saying, you know, that this is you, you ought to learn from this and uh, you know stay down and <laughs> about, you know, abandon the, you know, this dream of being a writer. Perhaps if you were from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, you'd have a chance, but you know you're, you're actually from a, a farm in Africa, and uh, you know no one's going to no one's going to read your story. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I, so there I was uh, on the floor gathering up my papers and. Uh, that's when I discovered it's a, it's a good idea to number your papers because um, your pages because <laughs> a, a story that was already rather fragmentary and um, and and jolting and uh, you know, ended up even you know sort of in, incurably shuffled. Um, but I gathered up my papers and uh, and I uh, sat there on the paving thinking that there had to be a way. 
Um, and I, I think it's it may have something to do with my name being Troy, but I've always believed that if there's a, a will, there's a, there's a way. And uh, in that original story of Troy, a man you know, found a way of, of tricking himself mm. into uh, you know, a town that was walled. Um, and so I, I thought there had to be a kind of a, a wooden horse of a kind. And I remembered that a, a friend of mine was at, uh, working in a bookshop in Frankfurt, so I went along there and uh, asked them to to write a, a letter um, saying that uh, one of the publishers, I don't rem- remember which, I'm just going to say Bloomsbury off the top of my head, had run out of display copies and that I needed to deliver some books to the fair. And so um, you know, this guy lent me the books from the bookshop and I had them in a box and I went back to the gate with a cap on and uh, you know, sort of bowing and uh, this time they let me through. So that, that's the, how I found myself yeah. in, in the Frankfurt Book Fair with uh, Blood Orange in my hands. And, um, and that was uh, you know, how I ended up finding a publisher. What a great story. Um, and your second novel, uh, Blood Orange, um, is a lot more about you um, and is more biographical, would you say? Um, and it was adapted into a play, right? Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about that? Well, um, Although Blood Orange surfaced as uh, my second novel in print, in, in fact, I had penned this before. Mm. So um, in, uh, in the timeline of, of, of my crafting of, of uh, the novels, it was the, my, my original um, story. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's typical that a, a writer's uh, you know, um, first shot at a novel is, is um, part memoir. And uh, the, the character Gecko um, is, as I said, is, is me, rather poorly disguised. Um, but what gave me the freedom in putting it out as a, as a novel um, to, to, to invent as I went along was um, giving him a, you know, a fictional persona. So I, you know, as a rule of thumb, I'd say two-thirds of the novel is, is my story, but then I've got that uh, freedom uh, then as a writer of fiction to colour in beyond the lines of truth. When you're writing, do you fear that, especially when you're writing something that's true to your own life, it's you're incredibly vulnerable and you're exposing um, a lot of things that you think, a lot of behavior of yourself. How does that feel? Were you nervous to kind of expose yourself in that way? Well, I, I do lay myself bare in, in Blood Orange and uh, I don't always uh, come out of it uh, with flying colours, mm. there, there are um, you know, myriad things I, I, I did and thought, um, imagined, dreamt as a, a boy that I, I, I don't you know, fondly recall or that maybe I feel to some degree ashamed of. But um, I wanted to be as, as true as I could to my memory of um, how fumbling that journey was towards discovering the, the truth of apartheid and what was happening behind the scenes in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I risk in, in writing Blood Orange, writing in the present. And uh, to begin with, uh, Gecko's view of the world is flawed. I mean, he's even handed a, a, um, some racist thoughts that he doesn't question. Um, these are drummed into his head as stereotypes um, at, at school. And uh, I'm hoping that the reader will stay with Gecko and his journey towards um, unlearning racism in, in some ways, which is what Huck Finn had to do on on, on the raft with um, uh, with Jim. Mm-hmm. 
Um, anyway, that, that's an, another story that has uh, uh, captured my imagination as a boy. And in, in Karoo Boy, in a sense, I wanted to tell a, a, you know, a South African version of Huckleberry Finn. Um, and, uh, again, there's the, a friendship between a, an older black man and a, a young white boy, uh, a friendship that you would never find in, in the context of um, apartheid or even uh, you know, in Twain's America, for that matter. So... I mean, he put them on a raft, a place you won't find on a map. Um, you know, something, some um, locust that's that's fluid and that isn't, uh, you know, um, you know, charted. And so, to you know, Karoo Boy is a, is a fictional town. You know, so somewhere you won't find on a map. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that you've written fables. Um, is that the driving force to your writing? You come up with the message first and then you construct the story around that message. Yeah, I, I think that there's, um, well, a fable I, I penned was, uh, is called Bafana Bafana, mm-hmm. and it's the story of a young um, causal boy's journey towards uh, um, a game of football. He dreams of seeing his heroes Bafana Bafana play. The South African football squad is, is called Bafana Bafana, the boys, the boys. Um, but he's a he's a poor boy, barefoot. He um, you know, d- doesn't even have sh- uh, shoes. Never mind a bicycle to his name. And so, how, how you know how is he going to see them play? And the idea came to me of of wanting to tell that story um, uh, when when South Africa was uh, you know, hosting the World Football Tournament. And mm-hmm. you know, it, it seemed to me that there would be folk travelling there from all over the world, from you know, Sweden and Germany and America. Um, but that there might be, you know, young boys, um, uh, African boys, who would never have the money or the chance to see the heroes play, even though they were playing a stone's throw away. Mm. Um, and I, I wanted to write that story for my son. I was in Singapore at the time to give him a sense of, uh, you know, how um, it what might feel for a young um, uh, boy, black boy in South Africa to be so close you know, to to the magic, but yet denied it. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. partly historically due to the color of his skin but um you know nowadays it you know, comes down to money so your son influenced you before he was born or before he'd even really grow grew up am i right yeah, yeah. so that was something that incentivized you being a father and knowing that you were a role model in some way and that you had a responsibility well i I imagine I'm a rather sketchy role model, but um, I, I can't I, imagine that. But it would, I, I definitely had this desire to uh, to to um, capture these uh, you know the, these stories that were somehow floating there in my head and uh, to put them down in, on paper so that uh, you know, my son and my daughters would uh, see uh, you know, um, would, would you know, journey into uh, my imagination and into the. South Africa of my imagining. Yeah. How do you think this thinking has influenced your son? Do you do you feel that the things that you've taught him and these books that you've written have influenced the choices that he makes now? Um, it, it's hard to tell. I mean, the poor boy has been, you know, uh, forced <laughs> to listen to you know, Dylan and uh, indie folk music from the moment he was born. And uh, you know, I, I, I read stories to to him. I, I read all of. Of mice and men and the old man in the sea and Huckleberry Finn from beginning to end allowed to him. I mean, not just the old uh, standards, but also books like The Book Thief. And mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that some of that rubbed off on him. And, 
that there's a chance that uh, he, he's, uh, you know, he has a desire to tell stories of his own um, and that that's maybe why he's studying film. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he happens to play the guitar and, and write songs. Um, he's been standing on street corners since he was 12, um, busking and earning his pocket money that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, he, t- he too is a, a storyteller and uh, you know, I, I hope that I've had a hand somehow in, in you know, the, in... in um, you know, not forming his mind. I'd have no desire to curb or choreograph the way that he. You but know, encourage, thinks. yeah. yeah <laughs> to you know, I'm hoping that some of that fire, you know, was was kindled through the stories I've, I've penned and the stories I've read to him. It sounds like it was. Mm. Um, so just to bring us back to your career as a writer, um, could you share with us the process, the creative process? So from the beginning to kind of the end, for those of us who have never published a book or are not even close to that, could you explain how it starts? Well, uh I, I can't speak for all writers, but for myself, um, I find that uh, I have an idea for a story and it tends to brew in my head uh, for a year or so until I dare to put uh, a few lines down on paper. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a long time of mulling and uh, kind of dreaming the story to life. And then I tend to uh, spend about uh, two years writing and my novels are, are not long. Um, one might even call them novellas, but they... Um, you know, it takes me about a year to write a hundred words, and that's partly because I, I forever fiddle and fine tune and shift words to and fro, read them aloud. Um, I think you know, my my books are a, a form of poetic prose, um, and um, the, the the writing happens for me in in um, moments that are, that are again not uh, uh, choreographed. I, I I can't really tell when I'll. Uh, fall into the mood to write, and it it uh, can happen, um, you know, in a cafe uh, after midnight, or it can happen on a train journey. But um, I'm not the type of writer who can sit down at a desk and um, write within a confined time. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's almost as if I have to to wait for the you know the uh, the lines to come and allow time for them to do so. And then there's a you know, once I have uh, 200 pages or so down, um, you know, I begin to think of uh, sending the book out into the world, and it usually takes a, a good year of of hustling and um, you know, begging and cajoling folk to to look at it and to to read the the manuscript um, before it sur- you know, uh, surfaces in in print. So I've fallen into that four-year rhythm. Um, in fact, I've detoured from writing for a while. I spent the last uh, four years writing a um, PhD thesis through the Univers- University of Frankfurt. Mm. So I thought I'd wear another hat uh, for for a uh, time, but it um, I felt that it sat awkwardly, and that I, mean, I, I, have, I have a PhD in my pocket, but uh, you know, I, I've discovered that it's uh, you know, th- this type of uh, storytelling that I'm you know, that I'm drawn to, and that is uh, that makes my heart beat. And are there people in your life that you would quickly run to and say, here, read this, I've just written 200 pages, or is it very private and up until the publishers? Um, typically, there will be um, you know, a handful of folk, maybe uh, four or so, who I'd uh, send uh, you know, sometimes a paragraph out to or um, chapters out to as, as they unfold, as they surface. Um, uh, a few folk who over the years have... Uh, 
you know, voice some faith in my writing, and um, I, I I always feel that I'm um, you know I'm I'm happy to go back to the drawing board. I don't I don't feel um, at all um, uh, as if I have to defend the, the words heroically. Um, they, I, f- I feel very vulnerable during that journey, and so um, th- there's a lot of rubbing out and a, a lot of um, as I say fine tuning that happens. But uh, few folk would would see the books before they surface in print. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very fortunate in that uh, a few iconic folk in the world have uh, read my book, like Vikas Swarup, who wrote Slumdog Millionaire, and uh, you know he he, he uh, kindly lent me a dust jacket shout for uh, Befana Befana, mm-hmm. um, and then you know so, uh, in, in Bali once I, I happened to encounter John Berent, who wrote Good Night uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and. Uh, I mean, he he read Karoo Boy and uh, called it a, a, a South African catcher in the rye, mm. and th- that was magic for me because I always had Holden in mind as I as I penned Karoo Boy. That's a big compliment, yeah. Um, so coming from a New York writer, that was that was cool. Yeah. And then you know, so maybe maybe the most um, uh, a milestone moment for me, uh, maybe the most vivid feather in my hat was once uh, hearing from Bishop Tutu, who'd read Blood Orange and. Uh, his calling the book beautiful. And so even though I, I send my writing out to few folk as I write, um, the, these these words that have come from a few of the sort of guards in the art world have, um, uh, you know, they, they kind of echo in my mind and they lend me hope and uh, give me some faith, I think, yeah. And if the boy um, in your story could see you now or could see himself now, um, and see how you know the story has become the making of him, and that all those times he felt like the victim, it was actually a creative. It, it was it actually fueled some kind of creativity. Um, how, what do you think he'd say? Like, would would he be able to persevere a bit longer through those difficult times? Um, well, if the, if the boy is uh, the boy in Blood Orange who uh, is me, mm. um, you know, then. Um, I, 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 you know, I think he'd uh, you know, be a, a amazed that I, in the end, uh, found a way to out into the world. Um, however, you know, however fumbling that journey was, and that, uh, you know, that uh, I think he'd be amazed that his, uh, you know, story is is read in New York Absolutely, and in, yeah. in Shanghai. Um, and uh, I, 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 you know, I, I think there'd be some, you know, he'd feel maybe vindicated or. Um, maybe feel validated in some ways that it wasn't all in, in vain that there was maybe you know maybe it was uh, if not destined that it was uh, you know, a, a, however painful a part of a journey towards becoming an artist that uh, he, ha- he had it. to undergo yeah uh, I think it's only appropriate at this point to ask you what would you tell your 18 year old self Troy um well, my, my 18-year-old self has fallen uh, somewhat out of focus. I mean, my, my memories of South Africa are mostly visual. Um, but I, I, I think I would, uh, I would tell myself uh, to you know, dare to dream, um, you know, to just to not uh, lose faith no matter how often you, you're, yeah, you are shot down, um, just to um, you know, dare to put your words down on paper, and 
to yeah i think i i think i'd have to i'd have to tell uh, my 18 year old uh, self that it's a, it's a, it's a long and, and lonely road and that there'll be times that you'll be scared and times you'll feel abandoned um times you'll feel marooned but at the end of the day if um if you never let go of your 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 dream um that there's always a chance hey, somewhere somehow that um yeah the magic will happen Nice, very nice. Yeah. And do you have more ideas for books in the future, or you still got your PhD hat on? Um, no, no, I've, I've uh, uh, yeah, I've uh, abandoned the, that that um, you know, kind of writing. Yeah. Um, what what I'm um, writing now is a is a, a novel that plays out in South Africa again. It's a post-apartheid novel, and uh, it's a novel that for the moment I, I call Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, the story of a man who was once a freedom fighter in the struggle um, against apartheid, um, but has now ended up uh, just as a sort of a, a barman in a, um, a, a Cuban bar in Cork Bay. Um, and he's uh, kind of lost faith in the revolution, but he he has um, he has skills that are, are co- um, still uh, called upon. Uh, when when things come undone, and he has an old mate in the police, uh, who um, was a, a fellow comrade, fellow revolutionary, mm-hmm. and he tends to reel him in uh, when when uh, when he he feels that uh, this guy uh, can uh, play a role in in um, uh, solving a crime. So it's it's my maiden shot at a crime novel. Um, there's a South African crime writer, Dion Mayer, who has. Um, a crazy cult following in in France, and he's uh, you know, he really has put his um, name on the world map, and uh, he cajoled me to have a shot at, at crime. So this is another genre for me. I, I I have yet to discover whether I have a mind for it and whether it all all come together. Mm-hmm. But it's um, yeah, it's it, it, it's a good story. So I'm hoping that uh, that will happen. It sounds like a very interesting one. Um, will we hear from Gecko again? Will he be a teenager and then grow up and etc.? Or is that it from Gecko? Well, um, in in a, in the sense that Gecko is me, you, you're hearing from him now. Imagine, mm. you know, imagine he ended up as a as a teacher and that um, you know, he he's writing as a sideline dabbling and that okay. he's still dreaming somehow of one day escaping school, <laughs> mm-hmm. escaping the blackboard. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, thanks very much, Troy. And the final question: um, Do you have a soundtrack for your life? Yeah, it, it's hard to put a, a finger on a, a song. I mean, I, I, I said to you that I'm really keen on indie folk as a, as a genre, so I, I listen to a lot of uh, folk music. Um, but I, um, I, I think a, a song that comes to mind for me is uh, Johnny Clegg's "Cruel, Crazy, Beautiful World." Um, it uh, is the the name of one of my novels, and the reason I, I'm drawn to that song is that I, um, the, the way I read it, it's a it's a prayer of a kind from a father to his son, um, hoping that uh, you know that uh, somehow he'll ride out some of the hazards in in this world. Um, there are a lot of um, hurdles that uh, can waylay you and catch you out. Um, there are sharks in the sea, and there are crocodiles in the river, and there are crooked politicos and uh, you know there there are these forces in the world that may want to hurt you um but 
yeah, it's a, it's a prayer from a father to his son, his uh, son that uh, you know the skies will be blue for him. So okay, cool. So we'll play that for you. Thank you so much, Troy, for coming in um, and sharing that with us. I'm going to play your song for you now after this, and we wish you the best of luck with your next novel. And hopefully, you'll come in and speak to us about that when it's ready. Yeah, I'd love to. Cool. Cheers. Thank you very much, Troy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. So that's it for this episode of How I Got Here. Thank you so much to Troy Blacklaws for coming in and talking about his book and sharing the ups and downs of becoming an author. Next, I'm going to play you Johnny Clegg's Cool, Crazy, Beautiful World. I'm Marina Lai. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate us on iTunes and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Smile.